Hey guys, Becky here. A quick word of warning before we start. A part of today's episode deals with the subjects surrounding the Me Too movement, including sexual assault, casting couch culture, and abuses of power. That comes in as we're talking about the film Curtains. So if that's something that's uncomfortable for you, feel free to jump forward from about the 25-minute mark, you'll know when, to the 35-minute mark to hear about Strange Brew, which has a story about Esther Williams' dive tank and is delightful. Thanks, as always, for listening. Now, on with the show. After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me... Oh, guys, I have one heck of a treat. You will know her from many films we have already covered on the podcast, including Black Christmas, Curtain, Strange Brew. She's in Wind in My Back. Uh, she's in a bunch of stuff. She's a Canadian icon. Her name is Lynn Griffin, and according to IMDb, her nickname is The Neat Canadian Lady. Welcome, Lynn. How are you? <laughs> I am well. I, I don't know how I got the nickname the neat Canadian lady, unless they mean tidy. That's what I was wondering. I'm like, are they referring to tidy or just lovely? Well, I hope it isn't tidy because I'm not. <laughs> I am <laughs> anything but tidy. Do you have any idea where that came from? Like, was it from a, a review that, of your work or? I have no idea. I, I mean, maybe somebody met me once and said, whoa, she's neat. <laughs> and then it just reverberated around the and internet. I, yeah, but, but it's so funny because when I first read it, I went, what, where did that come from? How could that possibly refer to me? Do you don't think you're neat? That's not an adjective you'd attribute to yourself? Uh, if we were actually, if you were looking, I could show you because our house is sort of our production central and we're in the middle of um, just gearing up for a new production. So I, I have so many things surrounding me. I mean, the wall, the art on the wall is nothing compared to what is around me in terms of props, costumes, <laughs> knitting needles, <laughs> everything, because um, we're just gearing up for something. So, yes, our, our, our house is sort of like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Well, let's talk for a second about your upcoming productions and the work you're doing right now. I mean, you've got a ridiculous resume behind you, but what's coming up? Okay, well, my husband is Sean Sullivan, also Sean Sullivan known from Wayne's World and uh, Back to the Future 3. And Oh, our favorite is uh, 1999, the, uh, the one where he plays Mohawk, the sequel to 1983, the bananas, wonderful, post-apocalyptic world. It's great. And have you ever seen um, Ski Patrol? Oh, of course, Ski Patrol, yes. Okay, so he's suicide in Ski Patrol with the two masks on his face and this is who I live with. This is who I've been with for 31 years. How many single named characters has he had? Because I think of Phil too from Wayne's World. Like it's just like, just Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, he was once Alligator Boy. That's two words. Fair. fair. Unless you hyphenate it, then it's just one. Then <laughs> you're good. Yeah, and I think he was probably just called Gator. <laughs> All right. So you and the Gator, what are you guys up to? Okay, so Ron has written uh, a new play with music that's called The Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus. Oh. We are in pre-production. We start rehearsals in a week. Sean 
it obviously wrote a fabulous part for himself as well as another actor and a woman and then he didn't write a part for me so that was grounds for divorce so he has now written a part for me and I am playing the clown mother in the Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus. It will be at the new Grand Canyon Theatre that is in Toronto on Osler Street from March 25th to April 8th. Oh, man, that sounds so solid. At, in uh, Circus, Vaudeville, Monty Python, Clockwork Orange, uh, what else is it? All, all these different kinds of crazy, crazy, crazy ideas that Sean had because he actually got a parasitical infection from fishing in the Ottawa River. Anyway, he got this infection and he had these wonderful fever dreams and from that came this play. That's glorious. <laughs> I want to see this so bad right now. How do people get their tickets for this? Oh, um, well, we, we will be putting up a site on brown paper tickets really soon. We are a presence on Instagram. We actually have a Facebook site, which is, of course, the Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus. And there'll be a lot of stuff going on ab- about it uh, on social media. The big launch actually happened sort of, ye- well, the tiny big launch happened yesterday. So there will be much more information coming up soon. And you would call the Grand Canyon Theatre or you would go on brown paper tickets and search The Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus by Sean Sullivan. Now, in addition to a bunch of that, you also do the convention circuit. You're invited to a number of horror things. How do people follow you if they want to meet you in person and take pictures with you with a bag over your head? Well, as it turns out this weekend, um, uh, as of Thursday, I fly to Pensacola, Florida, to the Florida Panhandle to do Pensacon. Who knew there was a Pensacon? Anyway, so uh, it takes place on the 28th, 29th, and is there a 30th? No. Yes, there is in this month. There is a 30th, isn't there? Anyway, it takes place this weekend in um, at whatever the big fancy hotel in Pensacola, Florida, is hosting, uh, and it is a horror convention, but it is also... I don't know what reunion it is, but it is a huge reunion, a milestone reunion for Strange Brew. So Dave Thomas will be there. Oh, man. Okay, we're going to get into Strange Brew. We're going to get into all of your horror trappings. It's going to be fabulous. Uh, Let's start at what I consider the very beginning. I don't know if you do, because you've been doing this since you were 12 years old, is 1974's Black Christmas, where you played Claire. Uh, Now, you didn't have anything to do with that Eli Rill class that, like, everybody was in, like Janie Swood and all that were in. Did you? Yes. You did? Oh, I didn't know this. Okay, please, fill me in. How did you end up with them? I don't know. Probably through, you know, my connections with all the people that you're just mentioning. And also, I was probably pretty much a youngin in the group, but uh, I had done some studying, some studying of acting technique and stuff. And mime, funnily enough, as my husband is an award-winning mime, not that anybody ever hires him for that. Anyway, <laughs> mime is not that big that day, these days. Anyway, but yeah, it was one of those things that it was the cool place to go to study acting when I was that young, nubile age. Although it's funny with Black Christmas, because I had already, I think I had already appeared at Stratford, Ontario, at the Stratford Festival. 
um, not doing Shakespeare, doing a new play when they um, first kind of introduced the third stage. I mean, I, I remember being in Eli Rill's class and doing a workshop of Wedding in White, which then was sold and because they, the agency did a package deal, Carol Kane got to play that part that I had originated in Eli Rill's class. And because of Wedding in White, she got to, uh, Hester Street, which got her her first Academy Award nomination. Because I, whenever I think of you, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's like the Canadian Carol Kane, or Carol Kane is the American you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's um, my uh, my fond remembrances of Eli Rill. It was a great, great class. Obviously, like, yeah, when you look at the people who were there at that time and the people whose careers are still ongoing and flourishing at that from that class. So he was a very, very, very fine teacher. And I, you know, I guess Black Christmas just came out of a simple audition. I always say I think the reason that I got the part was that I told them that I was a very good swimmer so I could hold my breath for a long time. <laughs> of course, for people who need to go back and watch uh, Black Christmas, because it is thankfully fully restored and very easy to access, which is fantastic. Uh, you are the woman who spends a gratuitous amount of time in the attic being attacked by cats and having a plastic bag over your head. Um, now, according to other interviews, you can no longer do dry cleaning. Is that correct? I stopped doing dry cleaning very, very quickly after that. There's something about having dry cleaning bags hanging in my closet that just didn't sit well with me anymore. <laughs> I, 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 if I buy something now, it has to be able to either wash or hand wash. Which is very practical. I think we can all appreciate well, that. You know that I go to these horror conventions because ever since Facebook came about, I was discovered by, you know, the genre or whatever of horror fans through Facebook. And ever since then, I go to all these conventions. And when things get really slow and I'm not getting enough attention at these conventions, I just put the plastic bag on my head. <laughs> Perfect. And people are like, oh, I know you. ambulance. <laughs> So let's let's talk about Bob Clark. We've talked about him a little bit before in our interview with uh, both Art Hindle and Paul Zaza. Paul Zaza has some great Bob Clark stories about. I mean, we we all know he was visionary and a chameleon, and uh, he created entirely new genres. What was it like working with him at that time as a, as a director and as an innovator? Uh, yeah. I mean, talk about innovator. I mean, the Steadicam had not really been invented except for Bob and Burt Dunk, who decided to, you know, slap. I mean, and it wasn't a nice little handheld, you know, not, not the rig and the lovely motion rigs they have now. It was, you know, somehow wrapped onto Burt Dunk. And so it's Burt Dunk climbing up the outside of the house wearing the steady cam it's Burt Dunk strangling me in the closet with wearing the steady cam um wow the cats are going crazy here <laughs> uh they must be excited because of the way we're talking bob a, a total innovator when you think of the fact that i ended up buying john carpenter's house when i moved to los angeles of course you did that Bob Clark and Black Christmas was sort of the first of that genre that influenced John Carpenter and that whole crew. And a lot of those films that came after Black Christmas had that same kind of great sort of psychological thriller quality. Not so much the horrible blood and guts that we see now, which I'm not so crazy about, but it, it had that really sort of interesting, the thing that you're scared of most is the thing you can't see 
or you don't know what it is. It's not somebody, you know, that looks like a walking zombie that's dripping blood out of their mouth. Then you kind of know they're trouble. You would stay away from those people. But because in Black Christmas, you don't know who it is. We still don't really know who it is in Black Christmas. And I called him Uncle Bob because he was so sweet with me and with all of us. And and also because the whole shoot was like a party. It was like a sorority house because we were shooting in the actual house that you see. And that's where we were every day. And so everybody was very kind of loose and friendly and having fun. And Margot was drinking and it was all good. And Olivia was telling me stories about working with Zeffirelli, which was great. Um, because at that point, obviously, I'd been playing roles like that at Stratford in uh, Stratford, Ontario. Anyway, So Bob, when we finally got up to the attic to shoot, he was the one who had his foot on the rocker of the rocking chair and he was gently rocking it as he was directing me. He was also the one who threw the cat Claude (laughs) at me. Um, Claude Claude was the, I don't know about Claude. Claude was a real diva. Uh, Claude didn't really want to be in the movie and so they had to spray my face with catnip to get him to come up onto my lap, which Bob did. The other thing that was wonderful about Bob is he never really told us what was being said on the phone call. I mean, not explicit. He just said, you know, it's a lot of kind of dirty language, right? So we're reacting like, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to come over and cut your head or I n- certainly not what it ended up being. (laughs) I think I might have been a whole lot more shocked um, had I known. Anyway, but and between Nick Mancuso and Bob Clark, those are the voices on that phone call. But he, I mean, he literally had, you know, when you think of Bob Clark, these two Christmas movies, Black Christmas and A Christmas Story, you couldn't get, I mean, that sort of really encapsulates what, who Bob was, that he had this childlike wonder about him with this incredibly astute uh, filmmaker's mind and just doing some really, really wonderful things um, visually as well as, you know, sound-wise and everything with that film. But visually it was so unusual and also some of the um, actual content of the movie was very... Um, revolutionary at the time to talk about someone saying I don't want this child I'm going to have an abortion people say to me now that was so incredible that 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 was in that film all those years ago and I go yeah no you're right and that in fact you know although so many of us get knocked off in the end Olivia triumphs in a way I mean obviously she feels she has um, been sort of the warrior princess and ha- has solved this this crime this crime that's been going on. But in fact, she probably hasn't. No, oh, <gasps> definitely not. I could always watch a sequel to this just to see what uh, what happens. But I mean, what's Olivia Hussey up to? We'll throw her in. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll bring you in. You'll still be in the if attic. If you want to know about more about Olivia Hussey, read her book called The Girl on the Balcony. It's brilliant. Because she doesn't really like to do the convention circuit and stuff. But she was so, uh, although her, I think her reference to Black Christmas is about half a page in the whole book. <laughs> But, I mean, she had an extraordinary career, and she wrote a beautiful book. 
Now, with that, I mean, they've made two different um, remakes of this film, which uh, I have to say, not as great. The newest one. I've never seen either of them. That's what I was curious about, because, like, the messaging changes in each of them, and neither of them is particularly as subtle or as revolutionary as what the original one was. So you, uh, according to interviews, you watched this with your mother and your sister in the theater when you first saw it. What was your, your was your mind blown? What was your reaction to it? You know, I I I knew what I was gonna see. My my mom and my sister, and I had also done another film. Maybe it was after Black Christmas, but in those days, I played a lot of victims. So I got killed a lot. I got burnt. I got thrown from tall buildings. I got raped. I got murdered. I got it. So for them to see me suffocate. You know, yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, in that film, The Amateur, I'm actually shot point blank in the head. So that was much more terrifying than watching me <laughs> watching me have a plastic bag on my head. It's very funny. The other film that I had done at that time was a short film called Divertimento, and I had a nude scene in it, um, <laughs> which I actually call my nude scene Moon Over Kleinberg. Because the director had said to me, okay, can you, you know, again, hired because I'm a good swimmer, can you do one of those lovely somersaults in the water, you know, where your feet come up beautifully and then you disappear and it's all like this lovely, like, ripple. And I said, sure, I can do it. Well, when I see the film, what you see is you see me do the lovely little dive and then you see my behind, <laughs> if I will be, you know, not too gross, rises out of the water like a big white moon and disappears and that's what's in the film so moon over Kleinberg <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it and it's it's interesting because I mean you talk about being like the you were young you were cute you were virginal you don't want to talk about how young you were when you did this film uh yeah you you die in all these horrific ways and yet you were so young and cute and then we bring you into 1983 where your young and cuteness uh turns into something very different in the film curtains where you play Patty O'Connor all right yeah. Loved. I'm till the last reel. <laughs> you are. You get to be there. Although they reshot the ending. You have a gorgeous little lobby card of you surrounded by all the dead bodies. And yep. that doesn't happen. Ending. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then we shot it again and me in the, you know, the crazy house. So let's talk like let's talk a little bit about some of the controversy of this. People can go back and listen to the episode we we did uh, covering this film in more detail if you like you really want to get into it. But uh, Peter R. Simpson, who is one of Canada's like biggest producers, it was him as well as Richard Kupka, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Chupka. Chupka. Thank you. Uh, Richard Chupka, who was a cinematographer who was like fresh off Atlantic City, which had just won like a ton of Oscars for people. Um, and so he came in to direct this film. Film, and then there was some sort of drama and Peter Simpson ended up directing the rest of it when Richard was dismissed. Were you aware of any of this drama when it was happening? Well, not not during the initial shoot. I mean, I was very impressed with Richard Chupka's work because he really seemed like he was an auteur and because my father was a high fashion photographer and you know, I subsequently had a marriage to a cinematographer. So, I mean, I sort of was very interesting and interested in the way he was shooting the film. And I really felt that he had that quality of an auteur. So 
I, I guess the conflict came, you know, whether you're making a horror film that's a slasher film or whether you're making a horror film that is, again, more psychologically disturbing than actual blood and gore. So I, I guess the, the upshot was they didn't think there was enough blood and gore. So they had to chase Sandy Curry around the, you know, the costume and prop shop. And, and then they brought me back to stab Samantha. <laughs> of course they did. Now, how <laughs> was stabbing an, a cultural icon? How was that for you? Well, I mean, she, for me, the movie that she made called The Collector. Oh boy, yep. I adored and had seen so many times. So she was like a real, um, uh, I was a real, real fan of her work. And it was funny because in the uh, when we were first shooting during the initial shoot, she was actually quite uh, in character. And, and I think because there were all of us young, you know, nubile young women there, we sort of hung out together. And she, she and John remained quite separate from the rest of us. And I, I think that was because of the way she was um, approaching the role, that she just shouldn't think she should be chummy with all of us, right? But when we came back to do that, uh, it was really, really nice because we were just sort of one-on-one. And it was really nice to get to know her and to be able to say, you know, you're one of my favorite actresses from this movie that you did many years ago with Terrence Stamp. And so, I, I mean, it is nice to be able to talk to people like that you meet, that you work with what I consider really truly famous people that you have sort of a crush on. And you go, oh, I don't want them to be... Um, aloof. I, I want to ask them all these questions. I want to find out who they really are. And she had been so sort of cool with us in the initial shoot. It was really nice to get to come back and actually, you know, because the other thing is when you're shooting those things, they're never, I mean, obviously they look very serious and very frightening, but they're, they're funny. We're usually joking when we're doing it, you know, and I'm saying, is this the same knife that I used to cut the ham sandwich I'm really gonna use that on her you know we would laugh and stuff it was a nice it was a nice reunion for me and to be able to actually you know get to know her a little bit better well I mean this film is so full of heavy hitters right like it's yourself yeah. and it's Matt Egger and there's John Vernon who was just fresh off Animal House and Maury Chaikin shows up and and Linda right. Thorson like it's Thorson. It's ridiculous, and it's it's kind of fascinating to think of in the context of Canadian film how many people who went on to be giant actors would cut their teeth in these these thrillers and these slashers. And you look at you know uh, uh, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin in Black Christmas too. Don't forget. Mm-hmm who's had a phenomenal career since then, you know, and it was in Cannibal. Well, and yeah, because it was still be another five years until she would appear on SCTV because she showed up to that party late. Yeah. What was the atmosphere at that point? Because like 1970 or 1983, things had been around for a while. You're just post-tax shelter era. But uh, what was Canada like at that time to be shooting film in? Well, uh, I mean, Curtains was a pretty um, classy shoot that I remember I mean, I'm trying to figure it like it, I, we were sort of, were we at the old uh, part of the set was at the old C, I don't know if it was at the CFTO building anyway, but we had taken over this big and built glorious sets. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is where we're all the girls are sitting around the dining room table and there's all these glass walls around and Richard Chuka had designed this um, camera move that he would be on a track and he would actually 
circle us around and you know he would let us know when we should speak or what when we should react to certain moments and the camera kept moving the whole time I mean that was really kind of beautiful filmmaking I thought um so yeah I mean it's it's funny isn't it when you think of where we are now and I I shoot a lot of little indie films and you know everybody's doing things so quick and fast and dirty and digital it's funny to think of how extraordinary it was to work with like the big huge you know Panasonic cameras and have all these tracks and sets built and that doesn't happen so much anymore I mean the interesting difference between Black Christmas was with Black Christmas we shot on site on a real house and everything on curtains was built in a studio so it was quite a different feel because we were going to work in a studio and there was like the dressing room and the makeup chairs and that's how we were doing it and we were going to you know uh into these sets every day i mean some of it obviously we shot on location but most of it was in studio so it's uh, i love shooting on location back in those days you did a lot more of it than you do now because we have great uh film studios in toronto and a lot of them and Hamilton and Vancouver and other places so there's not as much location shooting and I think in those days the location shooting really added something to those films I mean when I shot the amateur I went to um Vienna I shot it I shot it in Munich and Vienna those were the days when, you, <laughs> when they would fly you out and not just to like Budapest. Yeah, you're staying in a hotel intercontinental and you got this wad of per diem and they say, well, uh, we don't need you for three weeks. What do you want to do? Okay, I'll go and see the Vienna woods. I'll go and see, I'll go and eat soccer tort at the hotel soccer. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> Thanks with Chris Plummer in the lobby of the hotel in the Intercontinental in Vienna. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you can share Bob Clark stories. You've already got something in common. <laughs> It'll be okay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, thematically, this one is interesting to me. And I, I do love this one for as weird and disjointed and, and genuinely upsetting as it is. Because um, this was intended to be an adult slasher film. Uh, Peter Simpson had already done um, Prom Night at this point and was like, we want something a little more grown up. And so this was supposed to be kind of that answer. And so there's a lot happening about um, women who are maturing being taken and younger women being taken advantage of. And then you add the slasher element to and it kind of erases any sort of quality message that could be coming out of that. What did you think about it at the time, being a young actress coming to it? Well, you see, I mean, oh my God, Becky, like the Me Too movement has been sort of eye-opening and also, like, I don't even know how to really talk about it in terms of myself because we all went through that mm-hmm. in those days. The casting couch was as normal as anything else that I've ever experienced in those early days. And so when I think of that movie now and people say to me, well, you know, see, it's empowering for my character because (laughs) I want that role so bad, I'll knock everybody else off to get it. But it's not really empowering in terms of how the women are treated in the sort of casting mode and you know with John Vernon being so great in that role and so sort of scary and threatening you know I don't know how well it sits with people nowadays although 
It is funny that when I talk to people about it at conventions, young women seem to really enjoy it, and they somehow feel that it, with both Black Christmas, and I guess because in the end, in both of those cases, the two women, the sort of two women (laughs) protagonists are standing at the end, and they have gotten supposedly what they want, or they've solved they've solved the mur- the mystery or the murder or whatever it is but i don't i don't really see either of those films as sort of really very supportive of the of the movement that we're in at the moment so i'm i'm delighted that they have found a life that you know with their dvd and blu-ray releases that people are actually um not so much with black christmas black christmas always seemed to be a, like on people's radar but curtains was not. I mean, Curtains had a very poor release, and then all that was available of it was some awful bootleg that was on a DVD with like or a, a VHS with four other horror movies. So when they remastered it, and they did a beautiful job remastering Curtains. When I when I I finally sat down in a in a sound booth with Leslie Donaldson so that we could watch and do the commentary, and we were shocked at how beautiful it looked and how gorgeous we once were (laughs) Um, but I think it's interesting to see that curtains now is having kind of a following Uh, you know the 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 horror genre and the people who love horror are a, a whole different kind of wonderful species too I mean I don't know I you know when we talk about how we're treated as actresses in film and whether we were taken advantage of and you go yeah there were times that definitely we were but I wouldn't say in my experience shooting either of those films I was other times yes there were some kind of strange things that went on and you know being told to meet up with some director in a hotel room and he shows up wearing a towel yeah yeah that happened and I, I feel very strongly about it. I just don't know whether we've gone too far in the opposite direction now and that people are so afraid and actors particularly, you know, our job is to uh, mirror life and show intimacy and, and be available to the other actors in the scenes and the directors in the scenes. So we have to have that vulnerability. And now everything is so, so... Um, closed off and and particularly actors the male actors are actually frightened and everything has to be consensual and so it it lacks some of that lovely playful innocence and intimacy that we had with one another when we were working when we were younger that now we're we're very frightened of and I, because I taught Shakespeare for a while as well and not being able to actually touch a student or actually be in a room with them one-on-one anymore uh i I feel some of that um some of that creativity gets influenced by the lack of 
uh, intimacy and vulnerability we're able to show to each other. Uh, that's an interesting point, and it's something I am hearing a generation of actors, especially from people who came up in the 70s and 80s when there was this like huge independent film movement um, with a lot of uh, very innovative, very um, visceral film. Like you think about stuff like Easy Rider, would that have been made today? Um, even going down the road, right? Like that right. kind of that kind of aspect and that kind of um, hey, we're gonna shoot quick, dirty, take off your clothes, Jane, whenever you're ready. I think way we're moving right now is to figure out how we do work together so that creativity is still available and that but now with a level of trust and a level of safety for everyone involved so that you don't have to worry about being afraid that someone is going to accuse you falsely or, or correctly of of that action. So making sure everybody's on the same page of understanding what is consent? What are my boundaries? Before we go into this, like I'm cool with like this kind of touch. I'm cool with this kind of interaction, but not necessarily this kind of interaction so that we're all on the same page and we can work together and find those boundaries together. Yeah, it's, as we said, we were when we were casting this person that we're doing now, we had a lovely actress who was helping us with the auditions um, because we were casting the man in the show. Mm. And, you know, it is very intimate and it is very physical, but at one point she just said, I'm fine with anything, just don't strangle me. Exactly, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's her boundary. She's good to go. However, if you sign up to do a film as an actress and, you know, you have nude scenes, you have scenes where you're strangled or you're raped or whatever, you sign on, you you know, you got to be really careful what you sign on to if you're not really willing to go there. I agree wholeheartedly. And making sure that the people who you're working with are also responsible and are going to have your best interest at heart and, you know, you're not going to show up and they're going to be like, oh, no, we don't have any modesty garments for you. you got to do it nude, right? Of course. And that, you know, certainly, I'm, I'm sure, probably still happens. Oh, yeah, no question. And you you work in indie film. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, the awareness that has been brought to this issue is fantastic. I think it's going to change a lot of things. And I, and I, I really hope that all those really despicable perpetrators are, you know, brought to justice. I think that would be great. I mean, I'm all about, you know, seeing Rose McGowan and all those people get what they, you know, deserve, whether they ever do, but get just get some sort of some sort of resolution to the issue that you have to carry. If you've been through a situation, you know, hey, we we all I, I mean, when the Me Too movement came out, and I was like, Oh, my God, people are posting Me Too, Me Too, Me Too, Me Too on Facebook. And I was going, my God, practically, I would say, 80 to 90 percent of my friends who are actresses had posted me too. It's awful. It's mm -hmm. terrible to feel that. But, you know, I, I was one of those people who typed me too. Yeah. So, you know, um, and it's it's a shame that, you know, still there's <laughs> there's still a glass ceiling. There's I mean, we're looking. Yeah, can a woman can a woman run? You know, can a woman be the president of the United States? Why are we asking that question? Why are we even asking that question? Of course, a woman. <laughs> uh, you know, other countries in the world have had women leaders. What is this about? I mean, why are we so backward in our thinking that we've still kind of you know 
put the chastity belt and the shutter and whatever, you know, I'm going to treat you the way I want to treat you because you're a second class citizen. Wow, so we're getting really political. No, I love this. So I'm actually curious about this because I think that, I mean, you're very articulate about this and I really appreciate that. I think the, the genre of horror and the reason why we're coming back to a lot of these films is it is exploring a lot of these concepts. Um, even though, I mean, a lot of these slasher films were, quite frankly, trash. The stuff that you did... I think has some redeeming yeah. elements and it's dealing with concepts and qualities and, and things that we want to have conversations about. So these young women that are coming to you to talk about yeah. them, they're f- trying to find their voice. and They're trying to find their way of being like, yes, we can't actually enact this violence. We don't perpetrate violence on others, but we can find some way of connecting to this in order to find our own stories and see our own stories resolved. Right. And that resurgence is fantastic. And it's great because, you know, some of the indie things that I'm doing now and, I, you know, I said one of my one of my joys, I always put it out into the universe and, and hopefully someone is going to actually I'm hoping I've got, you know, my fingers crossed that it'll actually come to pass. But that I said my my desire of what I'd like to do in a horror film now. So I'd like to be the little uh, old lady who lives next door who's actually a serial killer. <laughs> of course. Yes, because that's the power, right? You know, yeah, absolutely. Take it back. And maybe not, I mean, maybe I don't even have to kill people, but just pay them back for what, you know, whatever was done to all those women that I care about. I mean, it's kind of twisted, but hey, it might make an interesting film. Lynn, you have no idea how many filmmakers listen to this podcast. I've put it out into the universe now. Hopefully that yes. happens for you. Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's talk about uh, something else that you were ready for. You were primed. I mean, 1983 was a big year for you career-wise. Let's talk about Strange Brew. How did you end up with these misfit weirdos? Oh, man, I I think I I mean, I think some of it was I mean, it was just a a lovely audition. But I think some of it was that I reminded Dave of his wife, Pam. Of course, of course he did. (laughs) And they're all in the family with Dave Thomas. You know, his brother did the theme song. Exactly. So I think I I fit into that, um, that family. And, you know, and it is funny because I, I mean, I think common knowledge that I ended up marrying the D.O.P., on Strange Brew and moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> and started uh, a whole new world. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, God, he certainly made me look very beautiful, I thought. Anyway, a lovely man, still good friends, grew apart. And also, I had to come back to Canada. I'd had enough of Los Angeles. So I had to come back to Canada. And my mom had passed away and left me a house. So I came back. But um, Strange Brew was delightful for me. I mean, I've been a huge uh, SCTV fan. I had done one episode, I think, where I I doubled for Andrea Martin, and it was a takeoff of Flashdance. So, and she was doing, I think, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, but they had to bring in a real actress to do the acting scenes. Uh, you know, the whole idea of how... Uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie came about and the Canadian content ruling and all that. I loved it. It was an absolutely delightful shoot. We, you know, we shot around Toronto in, you know, that beautiful autumnal weather. I was being courted by the director of photography uh, in a, in a sort of very, um, 
gentle way because I, I actually had sort of a stalker oh, no. <laughs> who would show up at like I'd go back to my trailer and he'd be in there and it was someone that I knew previously but I had nothing to do with but he'd show up anyway so Stephen Poster who was the DOP well, sort of took my case on and made sure that that guy was not allowed on the set. <laughs> so um, what a, a loving experience. And, you know, quite honestly, the hardest part was because Dave and Rick were directing it. The hardest part was trying to keep a straight face because they were constantly, you know, improving and cutting up and doing and I had to be the sort of straight character right and I'm I'm trying not to crack up while they're saying okay so now what's going to happen is you're going to pick Rick up and you're going to carry him and now you're going to be in this big vat with him and he's going to drink all the beer and you're trying to go oh yes okay oh all right and I have to (laughs) I mean you're playing Hamlet for all intents and purposes I'm trying to be the serious one. Jeez, it was hard. I was cracking up all the time. I kept saying, I'm sorry for ruining the take. And of course, I get carried by Max von Sydow. Oh, my God. Uncle Max. I mean, that was like, that. what a pinch me moment that is. Because, of course, you are in those leagues, Lynn. Otherwise, you wouldn't be playing in these sandboxes and getting to drop all these names. Like, that's what you do. It's the best. Uh, I think what's so mind-boggling to me is that this film got made at all. Like, it seemed like there was so many stumbling (laughs) blocks. And it was made because of the popularity of their album. They had a comedy album they released. and uh, I I have a copy of that album. Yeah. Of course you do. And they also gave Getty Lee his only number one internationally, which is just mind boggling to me. Um, But then what point did you like? I'm sure once word on the street got out that they were going to make any sort of SCTV film because none of them were stars yet. Like uh, Ghostbusters wasn't until 85. Planes, Trains wasn't until 87. So like no one had really hit yet. Like what was the aura in in Toronto happening at that time? Well, I mean, it was... I mean, it's so funny when you look at that back and you look back at the opening of the film and (laughs) like the actual opening of the film was not too unlike the film opening of the film. People are going, what, what is this? What is this? I'm offended. What what are they doing? And (laughs) I, I mean, it was great because they were known enough that we were, if we were shooting in a public place, we sort of had to keep people at bay because they were, there was a lot of people who loved, you know, shouting at us and, hey, you know, hoser. And I was called the panty hoser. And, uh, y- you know, I mean, it, it, there was like a kind of a cult following while we were filming it because certainly people knew about it and knew about SCTV. I think it was such a lovely sort of homegrown project. And, you know, I mean, for Dave and Rick, I think to have this nice, huge amount of money thrown at them through MGM, Mm. my underwater sequences, I shot in L.A. in uh, Esther Williams' tank. The tank, the like 60 foot, like giant tank. That's amazing. So and I and I ha- I don't know whose dressing room I had, but it was like this palatial, like how you would think like maybe Debbie Reynolds dressing room on set or, or, or on the studio lot would be like with 
with all the kind of fancy curly Q furniture and the white carpet and the gold lame. And the, that was, that was what my dressing room was like. I was like, man, this is like so very cool. <laughs> I mean, only the fact that I was fully dressed with like winter boots and uh, wool pants and a wool sweater that uh, I couldn't actually swim to the surface. <laughs> you don't say. Do they at least had people to haul you out, right? Well, but we had, like, there was a diver with me, but we had these signals, and he would say, you know, if you're having problems, just do this signaling. I'm like, I'm signaling like crazy. <laughs> he just keeps pushing me by the feet, like, up towards the surface, and I'm like, and, you know, we're buddy breathing underneath mm-hmm. the water, right, with the diver. I mean, I don't scuba dive. I didn't, you know, I, yeah, again, I, I, it must be all of this because I say I can, I'm a good swimmer. <laughs> Do you, see, this has gotten to you into more trouble than I think it has good. <laughs> I actually just stop telling people that I'm a good swimmer. No, no, no. You're yeah. going to get to do a Mrs. Claus underwater next. It's going to be a Mrs. Claus <laughs> underwater. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the water ballet. <laughs> Oh man! Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I have uh, I have taken so much of it, and you were so gracious with it. Thank you so much. Um, how do people find you and your work and follow you online? You know, I have a Facebook. I have many Facebook sites. I have a fan page. I have my own personal one, and I also have my Lynn Griffin Fine Handicraft because I am a knitter and a creator and a visual artist as well. So you can find me there. Um, our website is woefully sad, but it is called um, babymonsterproductions.ca. We woefully neglect updating it, um, but I promise that uh, after talking to you now, Becky, I will put all the information about Slaughter Brothers and the upcoming indie films that I'm working on. And, uh, you know, I, I also like to say that, you know, the, the last film I did, they set me on fire. And- <laughs> So I'm willing to be anybody's victim uh, in film. Yes, yes. Let's let's be clear. It's so lovely to talk to you. You're a bright light. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And if uh, our listeners want to get more of my bright light, they can check me out on Twitter, at La Shrimpton. That's the masculine La Shrimpton over there. And they can follow our podcast, at RCM Pod. If you like what we're doing, you can also donate to our Patreon. That is RCM Pod on Patreon, not RCM Podcast, uh, because that is the Real Men Christian Podcast. That is not us. But thank you so much for joining me again. Lynn, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Have a great day. Whatever's coming up next, I hope I hear from you. Oh, you certainly will. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.